Since returning uh, to Romans from our old summer, our Old Testament summer series, somebody impressed me and tell me what was the summer series about. What was the series on? The Ten Commandments. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah, 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 the Ten Commandments. You don't, you don't remember the Eleventh Commandment. Don't forget what the pastor pre- preached over the summer. Since returning to Romans from that Old Testament summer series on the Ten Commandments, we've learned that in order to complete the gospel mission of Jesus, we must be united as the body of Christ. I'm assuming you're getting that, because I've said it ad nauseum, that in order to complete the gospel mission of Jesus, the church of God must be united. A divided church hinders mission. Or to state it positively, those who have been welcomed by Jesus welcome others to Jesus. We've learned this from two really important texts in Romans 14 and 15. In Romans 14, two weeks ago, we read 14.19 that says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. One commentator on the book of Romans calls that his favorite verse in the book of Romans. He tries to keep it in front of him and to remind himself of what it is that he ought to be expending his time and his energy on. He is too, and so are we, to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And then the second thing we learned was in Romans chapter 15, verse 7, last week, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Accept even those with differing views of yours. This is what's going on in the first century church. you got the Jew-Gentile thing going on. They're battling over whether or not they should continue to keep the Mosaic law. Take out Mosaic law and you put in anything you want in the blank today that's the hot potato in the United States of America, and you've got this talking to you. Welcome one another, accept one another in the Lord. And as you've been welcomed by Christ, because guess what? You don't agree only because of varying degrees of immaturity with everything that God believes, believe it or not. So if God welcomes you, even though you have differing opinions, why should you not welcome others just because their opinions are different from yours? And ask yourself, as we have been asking ourselves over the weeks, is what's currently dividing us a gospel issue? The answer to that question, I think, fairly safely can be answered, no. And so, therefore, Scripture commands us to be united for the sake of the completion of the gospel mission. Today, Romans chapter 15 and 16, again, not taking these passages apart like I would like to because time is running out and I have to take broader sweeps because I do want to finish the book before we leave much like what I'm doing with Revelation on Wednesday night. So today in Romans 15 and 16, through the example of the Apostle Paul, God the Holy Spirit teaches us that there are three components to fruitful gospel mission. This is the paradigm that I'm going to lay down here with half a step out the door. There are three components, it seems to me, that Paul, by his example, is teaching us through the Holy Spirit to fruitful gospel missions. You already heard me pray some of it. Here it comes. Fruitful gospel mission means you will have gospel mission plans. 
This is Romans 15, verses 14 to 29. Second component is that you will have gospel mission prayers. Romans chapter 15, verses 30 to 33. Third component is that not only will you and I need, must have mission plans and mission prayers, we need mission peoples as well. Romans chapter 16, verses 1 to 16. Now let me show you from the text where these things come and how they continue to resonate to me as I've gone over this and over this and over this, thinking this, is, this works, this is right. This example from Paul ought to be adopted as we're going out the door, as I am going out the door. Let's talk about New York Baptist Church having a gospel mission plan. Let's talk about New York Baptist Church praying together gospel mission prayers. And let's continue to pray together as I go out the door that New York Baptist Church will have gospel mission peoples. That S is really important, and I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. All right? I was going to begin the sermon by asking you what would be the components of a fruitful gospel mission church and to see how close we got with our guesses. Let's look at it. Romans 15, verses 14 to 29. Gospel mission plans. Paul models for us right out of the gate here because he switches gears. We, we, we closed a major section last week. 15, 13 closes a major section. 15, 14 really is the beginning of the end. The plane's in descent now. The plane's on its way down and it's about to hit the runway. Okay, we'll come in for a full landing if the good Lord is willing next week. Paul models for us the balance that all good pastors must strike in shepherding the flock of God. A former professor of mine used to describe the prophets as spanking with the left and caressing with the right. Paul isn't necessarily doing it this graphically at this point in time, but you've got both of this going on. He commends them, but there's a but. And this is good balance. This is good pastoral care. This is good pastoral balance. Look what he says in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Good pastors encourage the flock. They tell them, this is what you're doing well. Kudos. Keep it up. Good job. Then he pivots in 15.15 and says, but good pastors will also say, well done, but this is going on, and we need to address this. It's taking away from your growth in holiness and your growth in Christ-likeness. It's dividing, and therefore it's affecting the ministry and the mission of the church. So in 15, he says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace uh, given me by God. So Paul, whether he's commending or whether he's challenging, he's doing it all, he sees, by the grace of God. And he's reminding them. It's as though... They have been taught this. Paul's never been to Rome. He's on his way there. He's never been to Rome. So he's getting, he's got an earpiece here, and he's hearing word from Rome that they're doing well, but they need to be addressed in some of these areas. So Paul's reminding them. It's not like Paul is thundering for the very first time. Basically what he's saying is that these areas are areas of need here in Rome, and I'm reminding you of them, and I'm doing so boldly. I'm getting your attention is what he's saying. Good pastors will do that because they desire Christ conformity. 
So Paul, as part of his mission plans, is encouraging, but he's also pointing out to them where they need to be reminded. And by what authority he does this? You, this, this, is a good, this is a good question. You ought to ask, by what authority are you doing this? Are you doing this just because you're a charismatic personality, or do you have your finger on the text showing me where the Word of God tells me to do this? This is what Paul does. And a lot of Romans is all about whether or not Paul's got the authority, whether or not he's got the cred for Rome to buy in to his worldwide mission. And Paul is understanding that. So he spends more than half the book of outlining his theology. Here's my resume. Here's my call. Here's what I believe. And now let me show you from there how I want to launch into the rest of the known world at this time. Paul gets it. And so he displays the authority that he's been given. It's not man-made. It comes from him. So if you look at 15, the back half of 15 anyway, and on into 16, because of the grace of God, given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gospels in the priestly service of the Gospel of God. See, there's his authority. He grounds it in his calling. So Paul is already anticipating somebody, well, somebody saying, well, who are you and why should we, why should we listen to you? And Paul says, well, you know who I am. This is how we started the epistle. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says this. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So Paul, only repeating here in 15 what he said in his very first breath, in the beginning of Romans. Paul's not a charlatan. He's not a snake oil salesman. He's not showing up to sell books. He wants to proclaim the gospel of God, and he wants people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and he's been called to that purpose. This is the authority upon which his plans are going to be grounded. And so, as you would expect, having that kind of mantle laid on him you ought to expect to hear and see humility. That's why one of the things that gives me absolute fits is anything that smacks of pride in pastors. Pastors of all people were slaves of Christ, serving you. And I tell people who've been in some of my inner circles, and they, they, they know, they hear some of my story, they hear some of my testimony, they know some of the struggles that I've been through and am in the middle of right now. And I say to people, one of my mantras is, I'd be the stupidest person on the planet ever to step up in front of anybody, stick my chest out and say, ain't I something? Because I know from whence I have come. Which is why all of your accolades last week were really hard for this guy to receive. Because as I stood up here and said thank you to you at the time, said, I know myself, and I know my own struggles. And so I know that the kind words that so many of you showered upon me last week was nothing but the grace of God. So he leads to this great humility, even though he says he's proud. Look at what he says in verse 17. In Christ Jesus, oh boy, you know how much I love in Christ, right? You know how much I love those two words. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. See, he's not selling himself. 
in Christ, I can be proud. And I can say the same thing, although it's really hard for me to say that. I don't have the boldness that Paul does. But I can say truthfully that in Christ, I'm proud of what I've done here. I'm proud, in Christ, proud of the work I've done. Now, now watch what he does. And Moise wonderfully accentuated this when he read it. Verse 18, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, apostolic authority, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Basically, Paul is putting his finger down, and he's drawing a big circle around the known world at the time. He says, I've been there, I've done that. He said, but it's all about the grace of God. That's the ground of his authority And that's the ground of his humility. I'm not going to speak anything except what Christ has done for me. Or as he says to the Corinthians, all I know is Christ and him crucified. You can put that in my tombstone. He didn't venture to say anything apart from where he was with his finger on the text. If you remember anything about me in 10 days after I'm gone here, have this image of me right now. The guy had his finger in the book. And that defined his gospel ambition. Look at what he says in 20 and 21. This is Paul's mission statement right here. And thus, see the pivot, thus? So now in light of what I've said, now I'm going to say this. So thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. Paul is the quintessential, the original frontier missionary. He's going to unreached peoples. Full stop. Paul loves the local church. Paul circles back in his three, four missionary trips. Four, if you count, his attempt to go to Rome and Spain. Three, he circles back in those journeys to touch base with the churches that he founded. And he wants to know how the elders are doing there. It's Paul's pattern. Plant churches, raise up elders, make sure they understand the centrality of the doctrine of of the gospel, move on to the next place where they have not heard. He circles back around months later, years later, he wants to talk to Anthony Barone. He wants to talk to Paul Kleinow. He wants to talk to Moise Colbert. He wants to talk to Nader Atiyah. And he wants to know how the church is doing because you're in charge. Good, I like what I hear. Oh, I don't like what I hear. Let me send this letter to them. He makes it ambition to, his ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on somebody else's foundation. 1521, but as it is written, and here is the gospel in the Old Testament. This is Isaiah chapter 52. The gospel begins in the Old Testament. Those who have never been told, this is the sermon title right here, those who have never been told of him will see. They will see. If I had more time, there'd be several sermons right here. The providential, elective power of God at stake right here, beginning in the Old Testament, coming fulfilled in the New Testament and the New Covenant people of God 
will be accomplished. The things that make me impassioned about being the kind of pastor that I am and the supporter of world missions that I am is verses like this. God has promised to accomplish the mission. It will not be stopped. Who wants a part of this with me? And those who have never heard will understand. And here's the amazing thing about it. Each and every one of you in this room is one of these people. You are that grain of sand that was prophesied to Abraham how long ago in Genesis chapter 12. You go out tonight, and if the sky is clear and you see all of those stars, and you think of yourself being one of those stars because you were foreordained to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ before the earth was even formed. You don't believe me, you can spend the rest of your life trying to unpack the single sentence in Greek of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. If you don't believe me. In Isaiah chapter 52, 13, 14, and 15, I won't take the time to unpack it all right now, it's the prophecy of the suffering servant, and he will be marred beyond our capacity to understand who he is physically. It's the shed blood of Christ that makes any of this possible, and it was prophesied back in the day of Isaiah some 700-ish years before Jesus would even appear. It's the gospel in the Old Testament. You can't do any better than Isaiah for the gospel in the Old Testament especially when he gets to 52 and 53, and he has this glorious teaching, 52.13 to 53.12, this glorious teaching on the suffering servant that when you put your Bibles together, you come to understand is Jesus Christ himself. He is the mission. He is the plan. And so his mission plans Paul's now include Rome. He's, he's covered all of this area in Asia Minor. He's going to turn and now look to the west, and he's going to see himself going past Rome to Spain. But he also knows that he needs Rome in order to get to Spain. That's what Paul does. He's got Antioch, he's got Jerusalem, and these are the centers for these missions. Now, he's, he's done here. He's going to move over here. He needs Rome. That's the center. That's the Paris. That's the New York City. That's the Berlin. That's what he needs in order to launch from there to get the rest of the world converted. This man's on fire. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I have no longer any room for these in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in, in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I've got to go back to Jerusalem. Why? Because I'm an emissary, and I'm going to run gifts that other churches who have experienced the spiritual blessing of being part of the people of God that includes converted Jews, I'm now going to take material help back to them. Think of our work with Deshi's Hope. 
Todd Madden stands in front of you and says, we've got this work going on amongst the unreached people or one of the most difficult people groups on the planet. You can help them do that. You give me your gifts, and I'm going to run them back. That's what the Christmas in Bangladesh is all about. You're going to give this apostle, if you please, the gifts, and he's going to run them over to Bangladesh. Just like Paul's going to do this before he goes to Rome, he's going to go back to Jerusalem and drop off these gifts. Paul is inclusive. He's got wide categories for churches helping churches. Paul has a mission plan, and it's coming together. And it's coming together. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Verse 28, When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He wants to be a blessing, he wants to receive a blessing, and he wants all of that to work together in the gospel mission plans that he has to reach the outermost regions of all of the earth. That's the first component. And we've got to ask ourselves, Nudo Baptist Church, what are the gospel mission plans for you going forward? What are they going to be? What will they be, and what role will you play in those gospel mission plans to reach not just the outermost regions of Staten Island from St. George to Tottenville, but to go beyond there as well to the outermost reaches of all of the earth? My prayer will, has been and will forever be that God raises up people from this humble tribe to say, you know what? I'm going. I'm going. Send me. You're either going or you're sending. There are no other options for Christians. Component number two, gospel mission plans will only be accomplished through gospel mission prayers. The mission will only prevail as far as your prayers. Let me say that again. The gospel mission plan will only prevail as far as gospel mission prayers. Verses 30 and 33. Paul knows that no matter how good his plans are, if they are his plans carried out in his strength, he'll fail. Now listen to me carefully. Or worse. You know what's worse than these plans failing? What's worse are these plans succeeding? The plans that are man-made, the plans that are driven by men and women's strength apart from the work of God. The worst thing that could possibly happen is for that plan to succeed. That's what John Piper calls fatal success. You get the big splashy church, you get hundreds of people, and you're gutted of the gospel. I wish I was making it up. He realizes that no, Paul does, no mission plan will be accomplished without united mission prayer. Look carefully at the prayer because it's Trinitarian. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here. Our plans prevail only as far as our prayers. I appeal to you, brothers, verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, 
by our Lord Jesus Christ, there's the Son, and by the love of the Spirit, there's the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God, that completes the Trinity, on my behalf. Notice that Paul does not shy away from letting us know that this kind of prayer, this kind of gospel mission prayer for our gospel mission plans is hard work. Strive together with me. The word literally means struggle. One translator describes it as fervent prayer. This isn't 30 seconds as part of the announcements. Hey, keep the eads in mind. This is ordering your life such that you spend time doing nothing but praying for God's overarching plan to reach all of the nations, tongues, and tribes of this world and fervently praying over them as though it were your own soul that needed to be saved. Will you commit to that? Will I commit to that? Will you allow the leadership that's about to take place when I walk out the door to call you to united prayer? Or were you going to be busy that night? Our plans will only go so far as our prayers. What shall we pray? Paul gives us wonderful models of prayers throughout his letters. These prayer requests here are not exhaustive. They're not the only thing to pray. But here right now, he gives us two gems. Verse 31 of Romans 15, the first thing he asks for prayer for is for deliverance. That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. That's his first prayer request. That opposition to the gospel may be overcome. That's a glorious gospel mission prayer that any and all opposition to the gospel would be removed because we have an arch enemy. We are not unaware of his schemes. We take every thought captive in, in, in Christ Jesus. There is an evil force at work that seeks to oppose the proclamation and expansion of the gospel. Make no bones about it. You ought to expect prayer to be hard. You ought to expect rejection. You ought to expect suffering. But you ought to also expect God to make good on his promise and for people to come to Christ. Pray for that. Pray for mission deliverance. Now watch this. Now watch this before I show you the second thing that he prays for. Watch this, because we ask ourselves the question, did Paul's prayer get answered? Did he, in fact, get delivered from the unbelievers in Judea? You know what? He did, ultimately. If you want to read the story, Acts 22 to 28 is the story of Paul's, the back end of Paul's life. It's the story of his final mission. Now here's the ironic thing. Paul's prayer does get answered. He does make it to Rome. So he does get delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. But you know what? He gets arrested. Now, I'm going to belabor this point just for half a second. Because we have this mindset, we have this enculturation that we should expect, quote-unquote, blessing. Meaning comfort. Smooth sailing. No hindrances. And anytime there's a ripple on the lake, we're thinking, oh no, oh no, what has happened? 
No, you ought to expect ripples. If you're getting after this, Paul's prayer was answered. He did finally get past the unbelievers in Judea, but not until he was incarcerated. You say, oh, now wait a minute. How can you pray these kinds of things and call this mission a success if the guy ends up in jail? Brothers and sisters, as I go out the door, I warn you that you ought not to be surprised if you have to suffer for this. You ought not to be su surprised if you're actually thrown into jail for the gospel. For the gospel. Because there are Christians right now who are being thrown into jail and they think they're doing the churches a, 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 a favor and they're not because what they're getting thrown into jail for has got nothing to do with the gospel. It may be about a cause, but it's not the gospel. That's one of the reasons why I say I, get, I, I do get in trouble for this. Every year I get an annual list of the 10 most difficult places in the world to be a Christian, and those are all under the umbrella of persecution. Those of you who have been with me in the study of Revelation, you know that Revelation makes it abundantly clear that there are two serious threats to the existence of the local church. One of them is persecution. And Revelation calls us to persevere in the time of persecution. Right now, we are not under persecution. Let's make that clear. This church is, the church in America is not being persecuted. That's an insult to the churches around the world that are. What's the other equally diabolical force that's at work against the church of Jesus Christ? It's affluence. It's affluence. It's seduction. And what does John the seer call the church to do when this is the threat? He calls us to wisdom, godly wisdom, and to come out from her. Not to remove yourself in a monastery kind of way, but to come out from her ways, away, away from her values, away from her spirituality. Persecution, perseverance. Seduction, wisdom. I'm praying for wisdom for the leadership right now. Because the threat to this church is not persecution, it's seduction. Which is why... I would like to start up a parallel ministry and reveal, release to the churches each year the 10 most difficult places around the world where it is to be a Christian based on seduction. And guess what? USA, probably number one. Because we are the model. We are the power. We are the dream. And I ask you, I ask you, is it a test? Are all of your blessings, all of my wealth, all of my comfort, all of my affluence, is it really God's blessing or is it God's test? Persecution? Seduction. Paul prays for deliverance. Pray for deliverance, that we would be delivered from the seducing power, and I'm going to use Revelation language here, seducing power of the whore Babylon. What's the second thing that he prays for? The second thing that he prays for is mission acceptance. He wants to be delivered so that I'm delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that, here it is, my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. In other words, Paul's saying that his work will not be in vain. 
So we pray gospel mission prayers, that there be no hindrance to the gospel going forward, and secondly, that our work would not be in vain, that God would, that God would not allow us to go off on rabbit trails, that God would not let us get lost somewhere in the weeds and lose the centrality of the gospel. It's a cliche, but it's powerful. Keep the main thing the main thing, New York Baptist Church, please. Let me get phone calls while your senior pastor has gone from you hearing that my children are still walking in the faith. That's what I want to hear, just like the Apostle John heard in the writing of his letters. I can't tell you, he says in 2 John, how thrilled I am to hear that my children are still walking faithfully with the Lord. Acts 24, 17 tells us that that prayer, check, was answered. Jerusalem received the gifts, and they were encouraged and strengthened in the faith because they knew they had brothers and sisters from other parts of the planet that were with them along the way. So that, what? So that, 32, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul wants to get these boxes checked off because when he finally lands in Rome, he wants to be filled with joy and he wants to say, that's behind me, let's go. Next phase, let's go. He says the same thing in Colossians, chapter four, beginning in verse two. Pray for me that the Lord open the door, open the door for the word to go forward and I might speak it clearly like I've been called to do. Pray that. It's been one of my mission prayers for a long, long time. Colossians 4.2, pray for an open door that the word would go and it would run and it would be effective. Paul prays for mission deliverance and mission acceptance so that he might enjoy mission fellowship, the united sharing in common that we have in Jesus Christ. You need, we need gospel mission plans. Those plans are not going to succeed without the second component, gospel mission prayers. And obviously, third component, we need gospel mission peoples. In order for the glory of God in Christ to be seen and savored, by all of the nations, we need gospel mission plans, we need gospel mission prayers, but that is not enough. We need gospel mission peoples. We may look at this list of names in Romans 16, 1 to 16, and we may think like the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, or the censuses that are taken in Numbers 1 and 26, like, there's nothing to see here, let's move on. Well, if that's your mindset, you'd be wrong. This is an extraordinary list. You should take the time to read through, even though those names are difficult to pronounce. It's an extraordinary list. It's a stained glass window. It's a stained glass window through which we see Paul's gospel mission network. It's a window for us to see the people that are needed to complete the mission as well as the peoples one to the mission. That's why I use the letter S, the end of people. Yeah, we need people, but we also need peoples. People groups need to be part of the 
mission peoples. They come in and they go out and they make disciples. So yes, we need you and we need you to go to the peoples, the people groups that the scriptures speak about. Every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's how they are described elsewhere. Let's just consider briefly, where I'm winding down, consider briefly this list of people, just a couple of gems. Let me pick them out for you. I don't have the time to go over it. There's several sermons right there too, believe it or not. You're probably thinking, thank God you're going because I wouldn't want to listen to sermons on Andronicus and Unia. At least five house churches are described in these 16 verses. There's at least five house churches. There are men and at least 10 women in the list, one of whom is a deacon. Her name is Phoebe. She's given two big verses to start the whole thing. She was probably the carrier of this letter. She's probably the one who took it from Sancria, where she was a leader of some sort, and walked it, traveled with it to Rome. You've heard me say throughout my preaching on the Rome, she was the carrier and probably the one that read it to the churches. That's prototypical for the way that she's described in the first century and how things were carried. There are men and at least 10 women in this list, including a deacon, Phoebe, as well as Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis. Verse 12, it's all female names. The Tryphena and Tryphosa may very well have been sisters, but these are those who Paul identifies in his network as being co-workers, fellow laborers, if you please. There are at least two husband and wife teams one of which is well known to the apostles. There's Prissa and Achilla. You know them well. They taught Apollos in the book of Acts. You can see them in verses 3 to 5. And then there's Andronicus and Unia, also Jews. They're listed in verse 7. There are slaves, Ampliatus and Urbanus. You can see that in verses 8 and 9. And free. There are rich and there are poor in this list. There are entire households, which means there are people of means. And by listing households, it means they probably have household slaves. So the slaves are included in this list as well. The households of Aristopolis in verse 10 and Narcissus in verse 11. Men of means that they can host churches and they can have an entire family system that has come to Christ because of their influence. And Paul identifies them all. There are Gentiles and Jews. My fellow co-worker Herodian, in verse 11, may very well have been from the line of Herod. Can you believe that? Can you believe that somebody from the family tree of Herod came to Christ? There are entire families, in verse 15. Philologus and Julia, probably husband and wife, and their children... Nereus and his sister. Siblings, verse 15. Now, let's be creative for half a second. Take a deep breath with me. Look at that list. Now imagine your name in that list. Put your name in that list. Put your name in some list. Put your name in a network actively engaged in the gospel mission. And somebody at the end of their life, when they're looking over all of their friendships and all of their relationships, those that they've struggled with through midnight hour and meetings, 
and pounding the pavements, delivering gospel tracts and supporting worldwide missions. Put your name in somebody's list and hear your name called on that last day. Somebody greeting you and saying, well done. You contributed to the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the beauty of the list is that there's not a person in this room, past, present, or future, that cannot be on it. The kids in this row right here, you're on this list somewhere. The single people in this room, you're on this list somewhere. The rich people in this room, you're on this list somewhere. The poor people in this room, you're on this list somewhere. Husbands and wives, you're on this list somewhere. This isn't some dusty, archaic list of dead people. These people are alive. These people, 2,000 years later, have their name called. Will your name be called in 2,000 years? I want mine to be called. Imagine your name on that list. Because it is. Because it is. You're part of a gospel people network reaching the outermost regions of all of the earth. The gospel mission has reached, has reached, and continues to reach, listen now, across economic boundaries, ethnic boundaries, gender boundaries, Social boundaries? That's the beauty of this list. It's this wide. It's this wide. People who have opposed one another are now united and cited by Paul in Rome where he's never been. He's never been there and he lists 30 people. It is this most beautiful, united mosaic that incredibly draws together the book. These have been welcomed by Jesus, and they're actively, with Paul, welcoming others to Jesus as well. I mentioned John Piper's name a little while ago. He's written quite a bit. One of his books in particular literally changed my life. It was his book on missions. It's entitled, Out of Psalm 67, Let the Nations Be Glad. It transformed me. I confess to you that missions used to bore the life out of me. Growing up, in conservative evangelical churches, I would hear missionaries come back and they would put me to sleep when they gave testimony in church. There was somebody you put some money in an envelope for and you sent them off. They were strange people, thoroughly unexciting work. My heart was revealed that I didn't care so much about the lost so as to make any radical alterations in my life to win them. I was bored. It sounded boring to me. 
And all I felt was guilt when missionaries came and said, don't you care about people going to hell? Then go to the mission field. And I often thought, well, I do, but I don't know about that motivation. And then I read the book. And when I realized that missions was about the glory of God, it turned everything entirely around for me. Here's the most famous quote out of the book in one of Piper's most well-known lines. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. I'm not done. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. And then there was this one line, and it changed my life. Missions exists because worship doesn't. And it took me years to penetrate the depth of that simple sentence. And when I realized that God's command to every human being on the planet was to worship him, and that's what I as a missionary was to do, was to go and command the nations to worship God, it turned my life right around. It's Paul's theology. The end goal of all missions is worship. The praise of God and the glory of his grace. In chapter 15, all those verses about the Gentiles coming, three times Paul cites the praise of the Gentiles as a result of them coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus. And what are they praising? Three more times in those verses, they're praising the glory of God. That's the amazing part about 15 and 16. You want a theology of mission, you will get nothing better in the Bible than Romans 15 and 16. Paul's entire mission plan, underwritten by mission prayers and supported by mission peoples, was to go to the Gentiles that they may praise the glory of the living God. Those who have never been told of him shall see. The gospel mission is rooted in the Old Testament. The gospel mission is partially fulfilled in the work of Jesus and Paul and the named and nameless first century churches. The gospel mission continues to be fulfilled today in named and nameless 21st century churches. In other words, gospel mission plans empowered by gospel mission prayers are carried out by and to gospel mission people. You. I thank you for the privilege of preaching, Father. I thank you for the privilege of praying and of asking you to do what you have commanded and to do what you've promised. Oh, that you would awaken the soul of New York Baptist Church, I pray, dear God. That you would awaken us individually and corporately. That you would help us to take your word seriously. 
like seriously, as though they were the very words from your very mouth, which we believe they are. This is your priority. It should be our priority before all other things. Help us, God. We are weak. We're nameless. We're ordinary. Those are the exact people you use to turn the world right upside down. Do it again, God. Do it again. And begin with these humble people. I ask it in Jesus' name.